All right, there we go. Now you can hear my angelic voice. But, uh, yeah, so we're continuing our series in basic Christian beliefs. This is uh, part three of uh, the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God incarnate. And we talked about the apostles calling Jesus God and the uh, um, Old Testament prophets saying that when the Messiah would come, he would be God incarnate. And now we're going to look at different ways that Jesus claimed to be God either through his words or through his actions. And uh, so if you could open up to Mark chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. So what a what a blessed Sunday this will be uh, where we get to study about Christ's deity and then watch the Raiders defeat the Seahawks. And um, I think I've got... I've got Three guys uh, will give me a thumbs up, so that's that's uh, that's a pretty good percentage, a high percentage for the Pacific Northwest. So, so uh, we'll be starting at Mark chapter two, verses five to seven. Let's go to Lord in a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we just love you, Lord, and uh, we love your written word, and uh, but we love even more your living word. Your son became a man, the word become flesh. And so today, as we look at passages and, uh, and we meditate on these passages and focus on the truths in your word, that the Lord Jesus is not just a, a teacher or a prophet, but he claimed to be God incarnate. He claimed to be our savior. He claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. And so I just pray, Lord, that we would not just trust in Jesus for salvation um, and obey him since he is our Lord, but that we would also worship him as God the Son become a man. And so I pray, Lord, that uh, as we look into your perfect word, uh, I pray that you would uh, anoint me with your spirit, anoint me a fallible preacher so that I would not lead anyone astray. Enable me to proclaim your truth and to rightly interpret the word of God and to communicate your truths effectively. Please open hearts and minds, including my own, to receive truth from your word and empower us all by your spirit and for your glory to apply these truths to our lives. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Well, we get to look at what Jesus claimed about himself, that he claimed to be God in many different ways. And, um, and you know, going into this, this Christmas season, December is just a few days away. Christmas is about a month away. And uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll focus on what so few Americans focus on during the Christmas season. It's not the materialism. It's not the gift giving. It's not... Uh, the hustle and bustle or whatever it may be, our focus should be on the fact that that babe in the manger was actually God the Son become a man. And so we're going to look at different ways that Jesus claimed to be God. I'm going to be working off the handout that that says ways Jesus claimed to be God. The verses are not written down there for you. So if you want to do some further research into this, uh, you can write down the verses as I talk about them. But uh, the first point I want to make, he accepted worship. He accepted worship. Now, when he was a little baby, the wise men worshipped him. Uh, Matthew 2.11. Of course, he's a little baby. I don't know how he could stop him from doing that. But then as an adult, his disciples worshipped him. Uh, Matthew 14, verse 33. Matthew 28, verse 9. The man born blind. In John chapter 9, that Jesus healed. He worshiped Jesus, okay? And the word in the Greek, proskuneo, means to to kiss towards, but it it entails bowing before someone, not out of political respect, but it means to bow before them in a religious context, to worship them. Doubting Thomas worshiped Jesus in John 20, verses 26 to 29, when he saw Jesus risen from the dead. 
And he said, my Lord and my God, in the Greek, hakoriasmu, kaihathiasmu, my Lord and my God. And so it only makes sense that in Revelation chapter 5, you have all the inhabitants of heaven bowing before God the Father's throne, but they're also bowing before the Lamb who was slain's throne. And there might be, you know, idiots on earth bowing before false gods and idols, but in heaven, you only bow before God. And so there in heaven, bowing before Jesus' throne, the lamb who was slain. But Jesus accepted worship. Now, you have to understand, when Cornelius bowed before Peter, Peter told him, get up. I'm a man just like you. Only worship God. When John, the Apostle John, twice in the book of Revelation, bowed before angelic beings, powerful angelic beings coming from the throne room of God, with God's glory emanating from them, twice John bowed before them and they said, get up. We're servants of Jesus just like you. But when Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth, if someone bowed before him, pretty much non-verbally said, bring it on. That's what you were created to do. You were created to worship Jesus. I was created to worship Jesus. And, uh, and so, you know, this idea, well, Jesus was just a good man. No, he claimed to be God. He accepted worship. Either he's God who he claimed to be, and he proved it by rising from the dead and fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies and by public miracles. Either Jesus is God who he claimed to be, or he's an idolater, a blasphemer. He didn't give us, as C.S. Lewis said, he didn't give us the choice that he was just some good teacher, okay? You know, if a few of the people that are here are some of my former students from Cross point, usually someone are old enough that it's the old King's West days. But, you know, if they went home and their parents said, well, how is Doc? Is he your Bible teacher? You know, I doubt very much they would say, would have said, well, he's a really good teacher and he's a really great guy. He's just got this one issue. He keeps claiming to be God. Okay? Now, if you're claiming to be God and you're not God, that defeats everything else. Okay? By the way, we, what we keep doing with Jesus, we always put him in the wrong category with the founders of the world's great religions. Let's take Jesus and put him in a category with Buddha and with like Gandhi and Muhammad, Confucius and all. He doesn't belong in that, that category. Those guys never claim to be uniquely God. You put Jesus in a category with all the other guys that uniquely claim to be God, he sticks out like a sore thumb. I mean, we're talking Charles Manson, David Koresh, Adolf Hitler. He believed the Aryan race was divine, but as the Fuhrer, he was the fullest manifestation of the divine, so little children had to say in German. This is on the Discovery Channel, by the way, the History Channel, the Learning Channel, whatever. Um, you, know, you don't have to do a whole lot of digging to find this stuff, but little children in German schools, German government-run schools, had to refer to him, uh, Hitler, as their Lord, their God, and their Messiah, okay? It was required. And uh, you put Jesus in a category, Reverend Sung Young Moon, with all the guys that claim to be uniquely God, some of the Roman Caesars and all, uh, and Jesus sticks out like a sore thumb because he's the only guy that claimed to be God and lived just the way you would expect God to live if he were to become a man. In fact, John Stott made an interesting point. He said, somehow Jesus made the boldest claims about himself that any man has ever made, yet he goes down in history as one of the humblest men who ever lived. Now, you try pulling that off, okay? It's not going to work. And so Jesus accepted worship. So don't, don't lie to yourself. Don't demote Jesus and say, no, nah, he was just a great prophet. I mean, the, the Jewish assessment of Jesus 
First, he was demon-possessed, is what they claimed, you know, with the Pharisees, and, um, and then a sorcerer in the Jewish Talmud. And then as time went on, he, he had such a great impact on the history of mankind, they started some, many of the Jews started saying, well, he was a great teacher, but his message was misunderstood. I think the most common view among non-believing Jews uh, in Israel right now is that, uh, that Jesus of Nazareth was a misunderstood prophet, a Jewish prophet. Um, Rabbi uh, Lapid, Pincus Lapid, he was a New Testament scholar. I don't know why a non-believing New Testament, uh, non-believing guy would want to study the New Testament for his life. But he came to acknowledge that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, and, and therefore he was probably the greatest Jewish prophet who ever lived. It's just the apostles misunderstood his message. Well, I, my response to Rabbi Lapid would be this. If you're the greatest Jewish prophet who ever lived, that makes you the greatest prophet who ever lived. And God sends a prophet to proclaim his truth to the people. Why would God waste the greatest prophet who ever lived on a bunch of numbskulls who couldn't even remember correctly what, what he told us? Okay. Now, Pincus Lapid did say to a Christian theologian, he said that um, uh, when Messiah comes, because we're, we're looking to the second coming of Messiah, non-believing Jews are still looking for the first coming of Messiah. But he said if he had one question to ask Messiah when he comes, it would be this. Were you here before? It's our job to tell people. Yeah. He was here before. The creator visited his creation. God the Son became a man. And so when Jesus accepted worship, you know, if you accept worship, that's, that's sinful. That's blasphemous because of who you are. When Jesus accepted worship, that's good because of who he is. He is God, and we were created to worship and to glorify him. And uh, so he accepted worship. He also forgave sins. Look at Mark chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. These, these guys, it's always good to have buddies. And this was a paralyzed guy, and he had buddies. And they found out Jesus was in town. So it's like, let's take our paralyzed buddy to Jesus. He's going around. This rabbi is going around healing people. Maybe he can heal our buddy. Problem was, there was a standing room only. The house was packed. You know, and that's what you would expect. If God's going to show up, he's going to get a big crowd. If not, the problem's with us. And so they couldn't even get the guy in. So what they did, they removed the tiles from the roof, and they lowered the guy uh, from the top of the roof. And... Uh, and it says, when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of his buddies, the guy's buddies, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus never questioned what they were thinking. They understood that ultimately only God can forgive sins. Yeah, we can forgive people of sins they commit against us, but when it comes to a stranger, only God can forgive their sins. Also, the God of Israel said, look, if you want your sins forgiven, I want you to do some outward things. I want you to obey me, proving that you want your sins forgiven. Of course, God the Father knew that until God the Son dies on the cross for our sins, the, the payment wouldn't, wouldn't be there. The bloodshed of animals didn't take away sins. But if you wanted your sins forgiven, you had to do what? You had to go to the temple and have the, old, the temple priests perform sacrifices. Okay? And, uh, and so Jesus is saying, hey, don't worry about it. I'm here now. Forget about the temple. You don't need the animal sacrifices. I'm giving you my word, your sins are forgiven. The Jewish religious leaders recognized immediately, okay, this guy thinks he's God because only God can forgive sin. Now, he knew that they were thinking that, so he said, you know, what's easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven 
but rise, pick up your mat, and walk out of here. And so Jesus told them that and healed the guy. So it's kind of like Jesus not only made these claims, these bold claims, he proved his claims to be true by the powerful miracles uh, that he performed. And so Jesus forgave sins. He called himself the I am, Yahweh. It's not as easy to see in the in the in the New Testament, in the English translation, or even in the Greek, but in John 8, 23 and 24, Jesus said, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. In fact, he even said this. He said, I'm from above. I'm from heaven. You're from below. You're from earth. Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Now, we usually translate it, unless you believe I am he, okay? And uh, so it brings with the idea, Jesus is saying, look, unless you believe I am God, you will die in your sins. This is something that's very important. When you're sharing your faith with other people, you haven't preached the whole gospel if you didn't tell them that Jesus is God. God became a man and died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead to conquer death for you. Okay? When you read different passages about the gospel message, uh, the incarnation, God the Son becoming a man, is an essential part of that, as is Jesus' death on the cross for our sins and his bodily resurrection. And, uh, and so you could translate that passage as Jesus saying, unless you believe I am God, you will die in your sins. So this is not some non-essential part of Christianity. This is the essence of Christianity. Christianity is not a list of rules and regulations and says, okay, if you do these things, you'll earn heaven, okay? Christianity is not about what man has to do to earn heaven. Christianity is about what God did to save us. Christianity is God the Son becoming a man to be our Savior, okay? And... Um, that's not, okay, that's just one aspect of Christianity. No, that is Christianity, okay? And I hope we let people know about that uh, this, this Christmas season. And so, so Jesus, the I am in the Greek is ego emi. He was probably speaking Hebrew to the Jewish people. And so the I am there is Yahweh. You're not even supposed to pronounce out the Jewish religious leaders. If you just pronounce Yahweh, Okay, you just say it. They said, well, we don't want to take God's name in vain. So anybody who just says God's name will stone him to death. Well, Jesus would say it. They'd be probably be picking up stones and say, wait a minute. He's not only saying it, he's attributing that title to himself. And so Jesus would do time and time again, he would refer to himself as I am. Well, this Yahweh, I am who I am. And, you know, that would be improper Greek. So the best they could do is ego emi, I, I am. It would be a literal translation of that. But that's when Moses, when, when God was talking, when Yahweh was talking to Moses from the burning bush and Moses asked him his name, God told him, I am who I am. You know? And uh, I could say I am because... You know, God created the universe, and he created humans. And eventually, two of those humans, Joe Fernandez and Angelina Minichino, got together, got married, had a baby boy, named him Phil. Uh, I am because there's enough water for me to drink. I am because there's enough food for me to eat. I am because I got shelter. I mean, there's lots of reasons why I am. But if you ask God, he says, I am who I am. I am pure, infinite, eternal existence. That's why there can only be one of him. We're not going to say, go, you know, be serving the Lord in heaven for a billion years and then find out, oh, no, there's another God out there as powerful as our God. No, there isn't. There's only one being that is pure, infinite, eternal existence 
And that one being is the triune God. And Jesus is God the Son. So Jesus could say, I am who I am. And we're going to see a little bit later uh, how he makes that uh, even, even more clear. But Jesus claimed to be Yahweh, the I am who I am, who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Uh, Jesus also called himself the Savior. We're familiar with passages like that where Jesus said, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We're all familiar with John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He who believes in him is saved, receives eternal life. He who rejects him remains condemned because he's rejected uh, the one and only son. And so time and time again, Jesus came and he said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. So Jesus called himself the Savior. And we say, okay, well, yeah, that's, that's good. I know Jesus is Savior. But how does it show that he's God? Just read the Old Testament. News alert, okay? Jesus was Jewish, okay? News alert, the Old Testament is Jewish. Well, just read the Psalms or read the book of Isaiah. Who is the Savior? Over and over again, it tells you Yahweh alone is Savior. Yahweh alone is Savior. A carpenter from Nazareth, not trained in the rabbinical schools of his day, goes around teaching, performing tremendous miracles, and, uh, and then he says, I'm the Savior. I've come to save mankind from their sins. The Jews knew, wait a minute, Yahweh alone is Savior. This guy's claiming to be Yahweh, claiming to be Savior. He's claiming to be Yahweh. Uh, you can see that here when he called himself the bridegroom. Uh, talked about John the Baptist as kind of being the best man, but Jesus himself was the bridegroom of Israel. Matthew 9, verse 15. Well, uh, just, just read the Old Testament. Again, Jesus was Jewish. In the Old Testament, uh, Israel is the wife of Yahweh, and Yahweh is the bridegroom. Okay? Now, I'm going to just skip ahead to one point, and then we'll come back. And at point 16, he called himself the good shepherd. He said he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for a sheep. He lays it down of his own initiative. He has the power to raise it back up. Okay? But Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Well, it was Psalm 23. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. And so Jesus is taking titles that titles of Yahweh from the Old Testament, and he says, yeah, those are my titles because I myself am Yahweh. I'm the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. I'm the one um, who spoke to King David. King David called him Lord. King David called him his shepherd. I walked with David. And I think Jesus is saying, hey, I was there in the beginning. I was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden before they fell. And, uh, and so Jesus, by calling himself the good shepherd, the bridegroom, and the Savior is claiming to be God. In Matthew 12, 8, they kept slamming Jesus because you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath day, but Jesus was performing miracles on the Sabbath day. And Jesus had to tell them, hey, wait a minute. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was made for man. So in other words, the Sabbath day, the Sabbath rest, was to get us to relax, take our focus off our earthly physical needs, put our focus on God so we could learn to love God through his power and through his salvation, and then le le learn to love our neighbors as ourselves, Jesus is saying, what makes you think it's wrong for me to heal somebody on a Sabbath day? But then he turns around and calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, who gave us the Sabbath law? It was Yahweh. Gave that to Moses. 
And so if Jesus is the master or the Lord of the Sabbath, he's claiming to be God. Look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We'll look at verses 30 to 33. Okay, we'll start at verse 28. John chapter 10, verses 28 through 33. In fact, verse 27. And I'll stop there. If I otherwise I keep going, we'll go all the way back to the start of John's gospel. So verse 27, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. He's not saying we're one person, but he's saying I and my Father are equal in power. Nobody can snatch them out of my hand. Nobody can snatch them out of uh, the Father's hand. I'm telling you, as things get really bad, Josh sent me a, a video of, of John MacArthur and John Piper talking about how bad things are going to get in the very near future and how bad things have gotten. And um, humanly speaking, uh, John MacArthur painted a bleaker picture than John Piper did and think we agree with John MacArthur. Things are getting really bad. It's not, it's not a non-Christian culture. It's an anti-Christian uh, culture. And, uh, and so people are going to be pushing us around big time. There's many people who lost their jobs because they thought the government was trying to play God and trying to force experimental uh, medical things on them and stuff. And uh, it's going to get worse. The government thinks that the, the church is um, non-essential. That's their words, not mine. Uh, the government thinks they have the power to shut down the churches. Well, we disagree. Jesus is the head of the church. And so just keep in mind, uh, when the government leaders bully us, and they're bullying us now, but you just wait and see how bad that bullying is going to get. When the government starts bullying us big time, just remember whose hand you're in. I'm in the hand of Jesus. By the way, when I don't know how to pray for people, I just place them in God's hand. Because this is a two-edged sword. You know, Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But if you trust in the Lord for salvation, he keeps you in his hand and he never, ever lets you go. And um, so sometimes I don't know what to do. I just place people in God's hand. Lord, if they cooperate with you, just protect them. If they don't, take them out to the woodshed. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll come back to you. But whatever it may be, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. We're equal in power. Nobody can take my sheep out of my hand or the Father's hand. I and my Father are equal. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. I mean, that was the normal response to Jesus when he spoke. They picked up stones to stone him. You know, this idea, well, Jesus was the greatest communicator who ever lived, but he never claimed to be God. No, if Jesus never claimed to be God, he was the worst communicator who ever lived. Because every time he opened his mouth, the theologians of his day were picking up stones to stone him for blasphemy because they saw that he being a man was making himself out to be God. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father, the miracles he was performing. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself God. And so when Jesus said, I and the father are one, I and the father are equal, they clearly understood this guy is claiming to be God, okay? So, I mean, C.S. Lewis said, look, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord, okay? 
He didn't give us the option that he was just a good man. Jesus of Nazareth clearly claimed to be God on numerous occasions, accepted worship, forgave sins, called himself the I Am, the Savior, the Bridegroom, the Good Shepherd, the Lord of the Sabbath, and he said, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are equal. Look at John chapter 8, verses 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, in fact, let's start at 57. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, because Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. You know, it was not his time to go. So he's saying, before Abraham was born, I am. The word for was born was uh, uh, genestai, genestai. We get like the word generation from it and generated, okay? So it's like Jesus is saying, look, before Abraham was generated, before Abraham came into being, if Jesus had said, before Abraham was generated, before Abraham came into being, I was, then Jesus would be saying, I was generated or I came into being before Abraham did. And then the Jehovah's Witnesses might have a case where Jesus was the first thing God created. But Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, before Abraham was generated, before he came into being, I am. He's saying, I was never generated, okay? I like what uh, Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, wrote in 107 AD when he was en route to be fed to wild beasts. He refers to Jesus as, the, uh, uh, as being both begotten and not begotten. And so he was saying he was begotten as a man, but he was never ever begotten as God. He always existed as God. I don't want to get into deep theological discussions about some of our ancient creeds, um, but whatever the case, Jesus was saying, I was never generated. Before Abraham was born, I am. And I am there, it's the ego emi in the Greek, is probably talking, the Jewish religious leaders probably talking Hebrew. He was calling himself Yahweh to get that point across. And... Um, and so they understood that he's clearly claiming to be God, but it wasn't his time to go. Um, you could look at John 17, 5. John chapter 17 and verse 5. Jesus is praying. The apostles are asleep. I think one teenage apostle was still meant to stay awake the whole night and was taking notes, and his name was John. And, um, you know, the apostles go out to buy food. Somebody must have been hanging out recording the Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman, the eyewitness of the cross is the apostle John himself. And John 17 and verse 5, Jesus is praying. He says, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory I had with you before the world was. So glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There's actually two claims to be God there. One is he's claiming that before he was created, but before he became a man, and before anything was created, Jesus shared the Father's glory with him. Now, he veiled that glory by becoming a man, okay? But he shared the Father's glory with him before anything was created, okay? And... Uh, so he's saying he shared the Father's glory. We don't have time to look it up, but Isaiah 42 and verse 8, Yahweh does not share his glory with another. Yahweh says, I alone am God. I do not share my glory with another. So why would God the Father share his glory with Jesus before anything was created unless 
both God the Father and Jesus are both God. Okay? There's also the Holy Spirit. Three persons who share the divine, the one divine being. One God, but three persons. So he shared the Father's glory with him when God doesn't share his glory with another. Yet, he's also a person who existed before anything was created. The only persons who existed before anything was created would be divine persons, uncreated persons. And so there's two claims to be God, that he shared the Father's glory and existed with the Father before creation. Uh, look back at John 5, verse 23. John 5, verse 23. In fact, as we look at John 5, As we look at John 5, we might as well look also at uh, John 5, 17 and 18. So John 5, 17 and 18, Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. And we think, okay, no big deal. No, to the Jews, that was a great big deal. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. See, um, the angels could be called the sons of God because each angel was created directly by God. They had like no angel daddy, okay? They were created directly by God. So the angels are called in the scriptures the sons of God. Before Jesus, there was only one human called the son of God, and that was Adam. Because he's the only, in, in Luke's gospel, the genealogy, he called, refers to Adam as the son of God because he was created directly by God. But since then, all humans came into being from other humans, okay? Uh, even Eve was taken from So when a guy shows up thousands of years later saying, I am the son of God, it's like, okay, wait a minute, you're not Adam, you're claiming to be the son of God. You're claiming to come directly from God's throne. You're claiming to be God incarnate. And so they understood by calling God his own father, calling himself the son of God, not a son of God. The Jews were kind of like sons of God as a nation. It was a national thing. Jesus is saying, look, I am the son of God in a way that he's not your father. Now, uh, we'll share a little bit more on that in just a little bit. But I want to get, when, he, when they want to stone him for that, wanted to kill him because he was making himself equal with God, he says this in verses 22 and 23 of John 5, never lessens his claim. He says, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. He said, hey, in the judgment day, I'm going to be your judge. Verse 23, that all should honor the son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. By the way, what kind of honor do we give to the Father? What is that called? It's called worship. Jesus said, yeah, that's the way you ought to treat me too. And so Jesus there said that we should honor the Son as we honor the Father. Uh, John 14, 9, one of the apostles asked, well, show us the Father. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He's not saying I'm the same person as the Father, but if you want to know what the Father is like, look at the Son. I'm the image of the invisible God. God the Son become a man, okay? He's saying I perfectly represent God the Father because I'm God incarnate. God become a man. Uh, look at Mark 14, 36. Mark 14 and verse 36. This is when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, 
nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He was, he was basically saying, look, Father, if there's any other way to save mankind, do that. I'm fully divine, but I'm also fully human, and I don't, want, I don't like pain. I do not want to die, okay? If there's any other way, take this cup of suffering and make it pass, but not my will, Father. Your will be done. But there he refers to the Father as Abba, okay? And so point number 13, ways Jesus claimed to be God, he called God his Abba. Abba is kind of like Papa or Daddy, but it's a little more respectful, but the intimacy is there. Okay? I mean, if you just walk around and say, yeah, God's my daddy. I mean, people would be like, what are you talking about? How could you claim to be that close to God? And so the Jews, whenever he would call God his Abba, he was saying, look, he is my daddy, my papa, in a way that he's not your daddy. You don't have the closeness that I have with him. The illustration I give for you here is that old video, black and white video footage of John F. Kennedy, probably a few months before he was assassinated. He's in the Oval Office, and, you know, here's the guy with charisma, and he's there with a really fancy, expensive suit, and he's just all nonchalant and smiling and all. And... Uh, there are two guys really nervous. They're really stiff. And they were wearing really expensive suits because they were in the Oval Office visiting the president. Probably, the, politically speaking, the most powerful guy on the planet Earth. They were wearing fancy suits, and they had a whole slew of badges clipped on because they went through the world's best security to get there, and they were incredibly nervous. They were like this. Real stiff and really faking a smile because they were kind of terrified. They were in awe of the President of the United States who was real nonchalant, just kind of, you know, smiling. But as the camera panned back, you saw there was another guy in the room. And the guy wasn't, didn't have any security badges. Somehow he got by the, the world's best security and they just let him through. They didn't even give him badges. And then this guy wasn't even wearing an expensive suit. In fact, he wasn't even wearing a shirt. He was bare-chested and wearing overalls. And he was pretty comfortable to be in the Oval Office because he was under the president's desk playing with a toy truck. Okay? So what's the difference there? You need to wear a suit and go through security and get the security badges, and you're nervous because you're in the presence of the president of the United States of America, possibly the most powerful man on the planet Earth. I don't even have to throw on a shirt. I'm not nervous, and I don't even need security clearance. He might be your president, but the John John... JFK was his daddy, okay? And um, that's the way it is with Jesus. Jesus is like, we're like, you know, we'd be nervous to be in the presence of God, and Jesus is like, hey, he's my daddy. That type of intimacy. Now, we're going we're gonna to apply that to us when we conclude this message today. Uh, but Jesus called God Abba. Immediately the Jews knew he was claiming equality with God. We don't have time to look at it, but in John chapter 2, he claimed authority over the temple. He cleansed the temple twice, the beginning of his ministry and at the close of his ministry. What gives this Jewish rabbi, this carpenter from Nazareth, authority over the temple? And then when he asked him to explain himself, he said, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. My father's house? It's like, it's acting like the son of God is visiting planet earth and cleaning up what needs to be cleaned up. If that's not a claim to be God, I don't know what is. We already looked at John 5, 22. All judgment was given to him. And John 10, uh, Jesus called himself the good shepherd when only Yahweh is our shepherd. But there's passages like John 6, 47 with Jesus' truly, truly statements. Sometimes he translated truly, truly. Sometimes amen, amen. Sometimes verily, verily. Sometimes most assuredly, I say to you, okay? 
This is why the people said that Jesus spoke with authority like no other Jewish rabbi. Because the Jewish rabbis, if you ask them, well, what does this Old Testament passage mean? They would tell you, well, Hillel says this, or Shammai says that. What they were doing, they had so much respect for God's word that they feared if they misinterpreted a passage, God might strike them dead. But we know Hillel and Shammai were great rabbis, great teachers of the word, and they died over 100 years ago, so it's too late for them to be struck dead. So I'm going to take the, take the spotlight off of me. I'm going to put all that pressure on them and say, well, Hillel says this, Shemaiah says that. Jesus was in the habit, like in the Sermon on the Mount, of saying, look, you have heard what the rabbi said about this passage. You have heard what the rabbi said about that passage. Now, I'm paraphrasing here. Now, take that and throw it in the garbage can because truly, truly, I say to you. See, Jesus was acting like, uh, look, the author of the Old Testament is here, so you don't have to speculate anymore. I'll tell you exactly what I meant when I wrote that passage, okay? In fact, uh, uh, scholars tried to find something in Jewish religious literature that had the same level as the truly, truly statements, and the only thing they could find was a phrase repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. It is when the prophet said, thus saith the Lord. So when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he was saying, thus saith me, the Lord. Okay? And uh, he was claiming that his interpretation of God's word held as much authority as God's word itself. Okay? And by the way, you better, we, we, we better respect God's word. Because I'm telling you, Jesus could, you know, he could walk somewhere and say, man, it stinks. That's the word of God, because Jesus is God. So anything he said was the word of God, yet when he was tempted, what did he do? Three times he quoted from Deuteronomy. And so if God, the author of his word, comes to earth, and in his time of temptation, he quotes scripture, what makes us think that scripture isn't important enough to memorize and to quote? But Jesus is truly, truly statements. He claimed authority over demonic powers. He didn't, he didn't cast out demons in the name of Yahweh. He cast out demons in his own name because he is Yahweh. That's why the sons of Sceva got all beat up in the book of Acts. They were looking for magic formulas. Occultism and sorcery was really big in Ephesus. So they were looking for magic formulas, so they tried to cast out demons in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demons laughed. They said, well, we know who Paul is and we know who Jesus is, but who are you? And so these guys ended up naked and bloody after a failed exorcism. Uh, Jesus just cast out demons in his own name. He had authority over demonic powers. He claimed to usher in God's kingdom, and according to Matthew 25, 31, he would sit enthroned in God's kingdom. In Acts 1, 7, the apostles want to know when he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Jesus is claiming to usher in God's kingdom, and he's claiming to be the king of God's kingdom. In a kingdom, there's only room for one king, and Jesus is claiming to be God. He claimed that we owe him the ultimate commitment. We should love him even more than our parents. He even said that we should live for him. Matthew 10, verses 37 to 39. Um, you know, some guy makes claims like that on you, you think, well, who does this guy think he is, God? Well, yeah, Jesus knew he was God. Um, look at Mark 14. Mark chapter 14. Jesus is on trial. If he's a good communicator, he's going to explain to them, hey, I never claimed to be God. And they probably would have scourged him and sent him on his way. But instead, he makes it even more clear that he's claiming to be God. Mark 14, verses 61 to 64. But he kept silent and answered nothing. 
Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And that the Son of the Blessed, that's a claim to deity. Jesus said, I am. Ego emi, probably before the high priest, he's saying Yahweh. I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven, the, the Son of Man coming amidst the clouds from heaven, the heavenly conqueror from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. If Jesus never claimed to be God, he was the worst communicator who ever lived because he was arrested uh, for blasphemy, claiming to be God. And even based on his own testimony, they said, yep, he's claiming to be God. Problem is you need two things to nail somebody for blasphemy. Number one, you got to show the guy claimed to be God. They had that on Jesus. Number two, you got to prove he's not God. They didn't do that. They found no blemish in this lamb. They saw the mighty works of God displayed. Why would God answer his prayers? Why would God work miracles through a liar and a blasphemer? Yes, he claimed to be God. They got that right. Uh, but what they got wrong was they failed to see that he really was God. Now, Matthew 12 uh, Jesus claims to be one greater than Solomon. Solomon was the wealthiest, most powerful Jewish king ever. To the mind of the Jews, to claim to be greater than Solomon, you're claiming to be God. He even said in Matthew 12, 6, one greater than the temple is here. What was the temple? The temple was the physical embodiment of the presence of God. Okay. Jesus acted like, no, the temple is just a type of me. I'm the real thing. In the old tabernacle, they took animal skin to cover the holy place in the temple, God's presence enclosed in skin. And Jesus said, no, the temple is not the greatest incarnation of God. Jesus said, one greater than the temple is here. Jesus is claiming to be the greatest incarnation of God he is God incarnate. He is God become a man. In fact, he's the only true, in the fullest sense, uh, incarnation uh, of God. And, um, and one greater uh, than the temple is here. This is kind of scary. You know, the temple pointed forward to Jesus and God's presence was enclosed in physical form. And then Jesus came. Uh, the true temple of God and even though the Jewish temple was destroyed in 70 AD, God hasn't left the world without a temple. And what really scares me is what's the temple of God on earth right now? It's us. It's us. The last time you talked to somebody, bumped into them in Fred Myers or Walmart, you either manifested the presence of God or you desecrated the temple. You might have just said, God bless you. You might have just treated somebody with a little bit of respect. Maybe that's all God called you to do at that point. But you are, I am, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And But Jesus said, one greater than the temple is here. He said that uh, David calls Messiah Lord. He said that in Matthew 22, 41 to 46. King David said, the Lord, Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. If the greatest king of Israel refers to Messiah as his Lord, then that means Messiah is not only Adonai, Messiah is Yahweh. Uh, Messiah is God. Even You realize that even in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 10, verse 1, the fact that Jesus chose 12 apostles and 70 disciples show that he thought he was God. Because New Testament scholars will tell you that physical Israel was made up of 12 tribes and 70 elders. So for some rabbi to pick 12 apostles and 70 disciples, 
he's starting a new spiritual Israel. Well, who started the old physical Israel? Yahweh did. So who has the authority to start a new Israel? Only Yahweh does. Also, in Matthew 28, 20, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is claiming, I'm going to be with you forever and ever. Everywhere you go, Jesus is there. If you go to a banquet, if you're a believer, you go to a banquet, Jesus is with you. If you go to a friend's house, Jesus is with you. When you lay down on your pillow in your own home at night, Jesus is with you. Brothers and sisters, if you end up in a prison cell someday, you're preaching Jesus. Jesus is with you. If you walk down a corridor to be executed for preaching the gospel, Jesus is with you. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I'm with, with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is claiming to be omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. Okay? And then, um, finally, Jesus accepted the title of Lord. I mean, like Matthew 7, 21 to 23, and not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. In other words, you got to, yes, worship Jesus as Lord, worship him as Yahweh, but you got you got to basically say, hey, I'm trusting in you for salvation, and that's going to impact your life. But Jesus accepted the title of, of Lord, which is Koryos in the Greek, in a religious context, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Old Testament Yahweh. And he accepted that title time and time again. So here, I've just given you 27 different ways Jesus claimed to be God. There's more than that. The, the deeper I dig into the scriptures, the more clearly I see Jesus claiming to be God. That's what the church has believed for 2,000 years. And uh, there's no reason we should abandon that. Now, Jesus claimed to be God. We're going to see he proved that he's God by performing public miracles, having the greatest positive impact on human history, by bodily rising from the dead, and fulfilling the numerous Old Testament prophecies. We looked at about 25 of those prophecies last week. So basically, I just want to leave you with this, the incarnation, that's God the Son became a man. Then the theologians talk about the hypostatic union. That means that Jesus is one person with two distinct natures forever. He's fully God and fully man. Jesus always existed as God, the second person of the Trinity, but at a point in time, he added a human nature. He added everything you had to have to be human. He added a human nature without subtracting from his divine nature. So he's fully God. He's got everything you got to have to be God. And he's fully human. He has everything you have to have to be human. He really is one of us. And then the doctrine of the kenosis, Jesus veiled his glory and humbled himself by becoming a man. Okay? Um, he did not give up his divine or powers, but he voluntarily chose not to use them for his own advantage while on earth veiled his glory so he could suffer and die on the cross for our sins. And so God the Son became a man. I want to close with two passages in application here. Ephesians 2.18. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18. His talks about Jesus not only makes peace with God for us, but he made peace between the Jews and the Gentiles and broke down the dividing wall in the temple. So verse 17 says, And he came and preached peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Those who are far away, those are the pagan Gentiles, and those who are near were the Jews. For through him, verse 18, chapter 2 of Ephesians, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So because of Jesus, because he is God, the Son, become a man, we have access to God the Father. It's what 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is only one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
Jesus, because he is fully God and fully man, he is the bridge between man and God. And then we'll close with Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, and verse 15. In fact, we'll start at verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Jesus showed up. And like no other man in history, he called God his Abba. And then by dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead and conquering death for us, he opened the gates of heaven for us. So now we have access to heaven and we can call God Abba. When Jesus taught us how to pray, Jehovah's Witnesses said, you got to say Jehovah. God say this guy. Jesus said, just our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So go back to that JFK illustration. And there's little bare chested John John in the presence of the president. He's not well dressed. He doesn't have any security clearance badges, and he's not nervous. Well, I would not be surprised if little John John one day crawled by in his diapers with one of his buddies. And maybe a rookie was on duty and a rookie went to stop him and uh, an experienced security secret service officer said, what are you doing, you idiot? Leave the kids alone. That one's John John, the president's son. Well, who's the other guy? Doesn't matter. If John John wants to bring a buddy into the little buddy into the president's office, who are we to stop him? I mean, we're only United States of America Secret Service. That's the son of the president. Some of you are hurting right now. Some of you feel a little battered and a little beaten by a culture that doesn't love Jesus. They hate Jesus, they're going to hate us too. And, uh, and you feel like, man, I got no place to turn. I got no place to turn. Well, because of King Jesus and his intimacy with the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have access into the throne of God. And they can't stop us. I don't care, Bill Gates, whoever, they can't stop us. We got access to the Father's throne. You know, there's always people trying to appeal their cases to the Supreme Court. We can appeal our case to the infinitely Supreme Court. Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, <laughs> the triune God, the God of Peter, Paul, John, he's our Abba. Jesus was the son of God by nature because of who he is. We're sons and daughters of God by adoption. Through the work of Christ and the grace of God. We can call God the Father, our Abba, our Daddy, our Papa. And we need to go to not just when things are bad, even when things are good. We have access through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Lord Jesus. Let's access the Father. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we created such a big problem when we turned our backs on you in the garden, we sinned. We rebelled against you, the ultimately worthy being, making us deserving of the ultimate in punishment, the lake of fire. But you sent a substitute sacrifice for us, the ultimately worthy substitute sacrifice, God incarnate, the precious lamb of God to die on the cross for our sins 
the lamb who was slain. And so we behold the lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And we trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation. We follow him because he is our master, but we also worship him because he is God the Son, become a man. I pray that as days get darker and darker in our country, a country that has abandoned you, I pray that as the days get darker, you would draw us through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would draw us closer and closer to you and to your Son and to your Spirit. May we cry out in our time of need or in our time of abundance. May we cry out, Abba, Father, not because we have earned our way into your presence, but because your Son, who is God incarnate, has earned the way for us. And so may we worship Jesus as God this Christmas season, may we proclaim that the Word became flesh, God became a man, his name is Jesus, and he walks with us, and he'll never, ever, ever let us go. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you, everybody, and uh, don't forget about the, the 